0: Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson.
1: Hello, Amber.
0: And we are also joined by a guest co-host returning to us, Dean Seal.
2: Hey, guys. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, it's nice to have you, Dean. Um, You missed something that I now feel like I need to correct from last week's episode. Oh, boy. Wow. I came out of the gate talking about the game Wordle, a little hot, <laughs> and <laughs> I said that I thought it was too easy.
1: Amber, running Ooh. her mouth again, <sighs> just saying, wow. what and is this Wordle? Uh, look. You're you're like a king in like medieval England. Like People are bringing you food. You're like, this is... This is this is nothing to me, throwing right. it against the wall, All right, and then words for
2: a living, come on.
0: Hubris will always get you, guys. Yeah, I hubris. mean, that's the lesson for myself, that I okay. came out saying, like, I love the game, it's fun, but I can always get it in six tries, and then, like, the very next day, or maybe two days later after we recorded, I did not get the word. I just was it, uh, wanted to say.
1: Was it Proxy that got you? Ooh. I can't
0: remember which one it was, but I okay. do remember, because I had gotten so jazzed about the silly little game that I was doing them like right at midnight. Mm-hmm. And so my <laughs> husband is already like, we're getting ready for bed, whatever I'm doing the wordle. And I was incensed that I yeah. messed well, it up. <laughs> Cause you're literally
1: on the record saying, what I is this? On this the is
0: record. So, puzzling
1: to me, you know, um,
0: lesson to me. Well, well
1: Amber has humbled herself at the wordle altar Dean. Uh, again, you weren't here last week uh,
2: it, uh, and you told us before we started recording. There's some wordle uh, news in your corner of the beat, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm excited that proxy was the one that got you because you you actually could have gotten a hint <laughs> if you'd gone onto the SEC's Twitter page because their their very hip social media team decided to um, put up a hint to that exact wordle oh, uh, no. puzzle. Oh wow! And and in it they referenced a video of the uh, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler talking about universal proxies. It is the <laughs> it's the least cool attempt at looking cool ever, but I mean that's the SEC's game, so. Can't take that away from
0: it <laughs> well I love it I mean now it's it's official everyone's playing Wordle. <laughs> yeah. if the SEC is also doing it
1: yes one of our foremost uh regulators <laughs> is, is is hip to the internet uh trend of the month here um but we do have an awesome show to get to uh Amber uh what did you guys uh, talk about yeah, um, in our main segment
0: Dean and I had a really nice chat with JC Rodriguez who's our um, senior environmental reporter he came on to kind of give us a big overview about The latest with environmental justice, which is something I hadn't really dug into before. We haven't talked about it on per se. So we talked about some states that are really on the forefront there. It was it was really interesting stuff.
2: Definitely.
1: Uh, Yeah. Always great to hear from JC. We frankly don't have him on enough uh, if I'm being quite candid um, and uh, looking forward to hearing uh, that we do have some news to get to. um, And Dean, I believe you're up first uh, with one of uh,
2: one of the canonical pro se stories, I would say. Uh, What's going on? Definitely. So we're kicking things off today with a little check-in with Martin Shkreli, who I think has always tried to portray himself in the media as this kind of smirking Tony Montana type of the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, But he's just gotten repeatedly crushed in the courts since he became a mainstream figure in 2015. So last Friday, a New York federal judge handed Shkreli, who's often referred to as Pharma Bro, a lifetime ban from the pharmaceutical industry and ordered him to pay $64.6 million for increasing the price of a life-saving drug by 4,000%. Uh, And this was the life-saving drug that kind of brought him into mainstream status back in 2015. So this ruling ties up some antitrust claims that had been filed a few years ago by the Federal Trade Commission and a few different state AGs, uh, including our New York state AG Letitia James, who proudly proclaimed on Friday that Pharma Bro is no more.
0: That is sort of the conclusion I think a lot of people were looking for who sort of loved to hate Martin Shkreli. But he'd been in trouble for so many things. I've kind of lost touch with where we are in his saga. Can you give us kind of the highlights of of what's gone on with him?
2: Sure. So I mean, he first started making headlines, like I said, back in 2015, when his company, which at the time was known as Turing Pharmaceuticals, bought the rights to a medication for parasitic infections called Daraprim, and then he checked the price up for that um, for those tablets from seventeen dollars and fifty cents a piece to seven hundred and fifty dollars. The Price Hike instantly got a lot of publicity and backlash. We all probably remember um, Mm -hmm. that there was this instant public villainization of Shkreli. uh, And he was instantly called the Pharma Bro, I think partially because of how young he was and also just because of the sneering defense that he gave of this Price Hike. He always said it was a byproduct of capitalism and that nobody would really be that affected. And after he got in the spotlight, he stayed there pretty easily. Uh, He went Mm -hmm. on some rage-fueled Twitter rants in the October of 2015. He bought up another pharmaceutical company and said he was going to do the same type of price hike on its main drug. And then in that December, uh, he revealed that he had been the one who actually won Wu Tang Clan's newest album and still most that's recent album. That's the part to date. I
0: remember the most, Dean. Definitely <laughs> the Wu Tang <laughs> Clan. I, I album. do
2: wonder if that's what's going to kind of instill him in the public memory more than anything else. Probably. Uh, yeah. So I mean, he was. The, the, this is like a weird bit.
1: I mean, it was only six years ago, a little, little more than that, but it, it feels like a lifetime ago. But like a weird little bit of internet ephemera. Um and the but the backlash even came pretty swift if my memory
2: serves me right right that's right yeah just you know, within a couple of weeks of revealing he had bought the Wu Tang Clan album uh, he was arrested by the FBI on this federal indictment for securities fraud and at the time I think a lot of people didn't quite understand that this actually didn't have anything to do with that price right. hike. Right. It was actually yeah, the, about the
1: a- order operations was weird because that was like such a public legal proceeding. And he was so vilified for the other thing he had done. There was a lot of disconnect between what he was actually tried for was this whole securities thing.
2: That's right. Yeah. It's, uh, I think, Amber, it's, it's something to the effect that it's, it's sort of like Al Capone getting taken up on tax evasion. In this yeah. instance, he was indicted for securities fraud. It was mm-hmm. related to both some hedge fund managing that he had done before entering the pharmaceutical industry. And then the first company that he opened in the pharmaceutical industry called Retrofin. And uh, the charges were essentially that he had lied to investors in his hedge funds about how the performance of those funds were going. And then he used his position at Retrofin to try and pay off some of the stakeholders who had gotten uh, upset with him through his hedge fund management. So he resigned from Turing a day after he was arrested. And he was pretty confident at first that he was going to be able to beat the government's case and that he was a target of a witch hunt because of this dare prim controversy. But then in August 2017, a jury of his peers uh, found him guilty of three out of eight criminal charges. And then he was sentenced to seven years in prison. So I think he's due right now to be released next year.
0: That kind of brings us up to date with where we were. But now we finally closed the loop and gotten back around to what he became famous for in the first place, which was that drug hike that everyone was upset about. How does the latest development fit into that?
2: That's right. So, you know, while he was still incarcerated on the security fraud charge, he was also sued, like I said, by the Federal Trade Commission and a contingent of state attorneys general. And this time they were looking at that original Daraprim price hike and saying that it essentially amounted to monopolization because not only was Shkreli hiking up the price of this drug, but he was also cutting off supply chains and he was making sure that the distribution system worked in such a way that his company would have essentially a monopoly over this drug. Mm-hmm. And so, the, like I said, the FTC and the state AGs uh, put together this case. The, it went before a trial last month. And then on Friday, we got an order that is pretty damning. It kind of sums up and ties together all of Shkreli's kind of sordid history, uh, because it said that he essentially road-tested this scheme of acquiring brand-name drugs and then monopolizing them. He road-tested that at RetroFriend, which is the company that he got into securities fraud trouble for. So after Shkreli was ousted from Retrofin, he essentially took that same game plan over to Turing and, again, jacked up uh, the price of a drug and sort of made a monopoly out of it. I mean, this order is ultimately pretty damning, not just because it lays out all those facts, but it actually it notes, too, that Shkreli continued to control Turing even after he had stepped down uh, from the company mm-hmm. in 2015, and then even after he had gone to prison in 2017, apparently via a cell phone he'd snuck into the prison. So the order that came down, I mean, it's, it's tough for Shkreli. And also, it's pretty obviously intended to dissuade this type of behavior from the pharmaceutical space, which I think that there's a lot of political pressure to clean up in some sort of way. Um, Yeah,
1: it's it's the kind of thing that can happen more subtly than like a guy doing it by a cartoonishly large amount and like making a big scene about it on Twitter. I mean, drug pricing is like a, a hugely important thing that like gets that that often, you know, draws scrutiny from regulators and law enforcement.
2: Right. It feels like it's trying to it's trying to pinpoint a type of behavior that is possibly a little bit more widespread or systemic than we really understand. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to tell after this if we're going to really hear that much more from Shkreli. I mean, he does have this knack for reinserting himself into the national dialogue over and over. But given the industry bar, I think Letitia James is right that this is maybe the, the end of the Pharma Bro moniker.
1: Okay, we will um, move from pharma to the world of academia now. Um, We had news that broke this morning, Thursday morning, um, just before we recorded, that prosecutors were dropping charges against an MIT professor who had been under indictment for allegedly concealing his ties to the Chinese government. This was a very closely watched case because it grew out of the government's very controversial uh, China initiative, and that is a DOJ program that is aimed at basically discovering Chinese espionage buried within U.S. US academia. The program has been criticized as being sort of racially targeted and just a bit of general prosecutorial overreach. And the dismissal of this case is the latest sign for a lot of advocates that the program could be on some wobbly ground. So there's a couple different different levels to uh, to unpack here.
0: Yeah, I remember us talking about this sort of broad issue on the show before. Um, There were Mm -hmm. a lot of cases potentially at play here. So what exactly are we talking about this time?
1: Yeah, so this case deals with charges, um, like I say, that that were dropped today against MIT mechanical engineering professor Gong Chen, who stood accused by the government of omitting his work on behalf of or with ties to the Chinese government when he applied for a $2.7 million research grant from the U.S. Department of Energy. He was hit with charges of wire fraud and failing to disclose um, certain Chinese assets, a Chinese bank account. And when the DOJ unveiled its case against Chen um, in the last few days of the Trump administration, uh, MIT's president and over 100 of Chen's MIT faculty colleagues wrote in support of him, basically casting the case as a witch hunt. And then it kind of went quiet for several months while, while it was working its way through court, where there were kind of whispers of the government starting to maybe soften its case and maybe even reverse course. And that all came to a head today, Thursday, as prosecutors said that new information had undermined their original indictment and call and voluntarily moved for dismissal, which was then uh, soon granted. Here was a quote from the uh, U.S. attorney in Massachusetts, Rachel Rollins. Quote, As a result of our continued investigation, the government obtained additional information bearing on the materiality of the defendant's alleged omissions. Having assessed the evidence as a whole in light of that information, the government can no longer meet its burden of proof at trial. Dismissal of the indictment is therefore in the interests of justice. So it's somewhat, you know, all we have is that they got new information and are now reversing course, but that's the end of the game as far as this
2: prosecution is concerned. So, do we have any kind of idea, kind of any inkling about what this new information might be that led the government to change its mind? We don't know for
1: sure. I mean, they just submitted a filing that said we have information, it undermines our case, and we're not going forward with it. But I do think it's worth walking through the very public refutations made by both MIT and Chen's legal team, basically from the outset of the case. A big chunk of the indictment focused on Chen's purported failure to disclose money that he had received. From China's Southern University of Science and Technology. And when the indictment became public, MIT's president basically said that the school's relationship with that Chinese university was more of a departmental one. There was sort of information sharing and resource sharing between departments, and that money was directed not to Chen, but to a group of scientists working at MIT. There wasn't some specific benefit that he was concealing. And Chen's attorney, Rob Fisher, honed in on what he thinks was sort of a misguided prosecutorial effort from the jump. Here here was the quote from him. The government finally acknowledged what we have said all along. Professor Gung Chen is an innocent man. Our defense was never based on any legal technicalities. Our defense was this. Gung did not commit any of the offenses he was charged with. Full stop. So, you know, here again, the government has not and likely will not, like you say, Dean, has, has not revealed exactly what led it to change course. But if you piece together, you know, what the defense had been attesting from the very beginning, you can kind of see some of the holes in it, you know, from its inception. Really,
0: This doesn't look great for the overall China initiative, though, right? I mean, do we anticipate ripples here based on how this one turned out?
1: Maybe. Um, as you said, Amber, we did talk about this before. And if you want a full breakdown of how this program started and the controversy surrounding it i would definitely go back and check out our interview with our own jack queen that was in episode 219 great chat with jack in that episode highly recommend it but in short the initiative began under the trump administration in 2018 but it has been carried forward by president biden they are they have prosecuted these cases but during that time criticism of the, of the program has grown louder advocates basically say it's has very explicitly racist undertones and that it's led to the pursuit of smaller charges like grant fraud when it was kind of ostensibly designed to go after like real espionage, intellectual property theft, trade secret theft, stuff like that.
0: Yeah. No one was thinking grant fraud. When right. yeah. put Together a giant mean, task force to do this.
1: Right. I mean, it was, you know, grant fraud is a crime and, you know, people who live in that world will say it should be prosecuted and all of that. But it's one thing to sort of Pound your chest and say like these are spies that we're going after. It's, it's sort of a it's a way you paint the effort. There it has serious uh, ramifications. In its history, the program has netted a few convictions. Last year, Harvard professor Charles Lieber uh, was convicted, but the abandoning of the Chen case um, means that actually just uh, more than a third of the cases that have been brought as a result of the program have now been dismissed. That's according to the watchdog group Asian Pacific American Justice. And if you consider that the government is sort of always trying to bring winners, having a third of its cases dismissed is not insignificant. Definitely. And perhaps the most pointed critique of the program came from the former prosecutor who brought the charges against Chen. His name is Andrew Lelling. He now works at Jones Day. He wrote a LinkedIn post two months ago that said the program had lost its focus. And then he gave um, an interview to The New York Times Today He expounded on that a little bit. Here's what he told the Times You don't want people to be scared of collaboration. There's no question on the academic side, the China initiative has created a climate of fear among researchers. That is one reason why DOJ should step back a bit. So, and that's from a guy who brought charges under this initiative. He said that the program had helped shed light on the ties between the Chinese government and elite academic institutions, and that there was some level of utility in that. But it's clear that enthusiasm for the program to continue in its current form is a little bit murky at this point.
0: justice groups have been working for years to help communities facing health and environmental problems from nearby polluting industries. Three states have really emerged as leaders in this area, and they may have some lessons for the rest of the country. Today, we're joined by our senior environmental reporter, Juan Carlos Rodriguez, to talk about what these states are doing. Welcome to the show.
3: Hey, thanks, Amber. Nice to be here.
0: Yeah, it's really nice to have you, especially over a big topic like this. Really looking forward to kind of going through the lay of the land of what some innovative states are trying. But before we start, I think maybe we need to take a step back and just set the framework for what exactly is environmental justice and why is this important?
3: Sure. Environmental justice, the term, has been around for decades, and it basically describes situations Uh, where communities, often low-income or majority-minority, experience a disproportionate share of health and environmental problems from nearby polluting industries, as you mentioned. It's an issue that's getting both state and federal attention, but it's kind of a hyper-local issue. So you can imagine your town and think of where the dump is or where a concrete plant is or a refinery or something like that. And then think about who lives closest to those areas or who goes to school near those areas. Those people are subject to all kinds of risks that people who live further away aren't, such as increased air pollution, potential groundwater pollution, lights and noise from facilities, and heavy truck traffic, um, just to name a few. Many of these communities report and Um, Some studies have confirmed that they suffer from elevated risks of things like asthma or even cancer. So it's been it's an issue that's been around for a long time um, with the industrialization of the country, obviously. But efforts at sort of mitigating the effects of these polluting industries on the communities have not been very successful to date, and that's because a lot of times these communities are so close to these industrial operations because of local zoning ordinances and state and federal laws aren't the best way to get at those types of issues. That being said, uh, there are some states that have begun to act more assertively. And the Biden administration in particular has also made it a focal point. So it's a a topic that's now top of mind for many who are involved in that area.
2: So let's talk a little bit about what each of these individual states that you wrote about is doing. Um, Starting with New Jersey, what are they doing in the Garden State?
3: Yeah, New Jersey in 2020 passed what's kind of widely been, been seen as as the most ambitious environmental justice laws in the country. And, and it's just called the Environmental Justice Law.
0: <laughs> Creative name we have here in, in the Garden State.
3: <laughs> yeah, the, legis- the lawmakers there really worked overtime on the title. <laughs> <laughs> but basically it kind of sets, uh, breaks new ground in that it requires a brand new hurdle for projects in EJ communities, as they're called, which is a new special environmental justice review. The law also directed the state government to develop a map of where these communities are based on things like uh, income, pollution, concentration, racial and ethnic makeup.
0: Yeah, that map, JC, is interesting to me because I live in New Jersey and it's a very densely populated state and a very industrial state, a lot of oil refineries, a lot of, you know, dumps and landfills. Like it, it's got a lot of potential issues here. Is that map institution um, something unusual? I mean, are other states, have they done it? Or is this really New Jersey's on the forefront of, of having something like that?
3: So California, which is another state we'll talk about, has been working on a on a map as well. But it's it is something, it is a newer idea. It's sort of always been, an environmental justice has always been one of those things where you just sort of, you know it if you see it. Sure. These efforts now are looking to put some much more clear guidelines about what is and what isn't an environmental justice community. So yeah, New Jersey is on the cutting edge of that type of process, though.
0: So in practice, what do some of the reviews that are now going to be required in New Jersey, what does that mean? I mean, how is that on a practical level going to help these communities?
3: It remains to be seen because the regulations that are going to, you know, ha- flesh out these reviews and even the maps aren't done yet. Um, they're still being drafted at the state administrative level. But what people are expecting are things like, you know, if, if a project, let's say it's a new project, is being proposed for to go in near one of these communities, it's going to pollute some kind of, you know, contaminant. If it's identified as, as being in one of these communities, there may be additional pollution controls that the facility will have to institute. There may be some restrictions on their hours of operation or you know, when trucks can come in and out, that kind of a thing. It may not necessarily stop projects. That's what I've heard, but it could, you know, go a lot further in mitigating. On some of the effects of these projects, Uh, it would be the same thing for an existing facility that wants to expand. Um, They'd have to get approval for that expansion from the state. And again, if it's in one of those communities, there there will be an an additional level of review to determine if it's in an EJ community and then what more can be done to help cut down on pollution in that area.
0: Yeah, that all sounds like um, an interesting approach to basically safeguards around these communities. What are we seeing in a state like Washington? I know that was also one that you highlighted as making some strides in this area.
3: Yeah, Washington State also, I don't know if they saw what New Jersey did, but about a year after New Jersey, so 2021, they passed their own environmental justice law as well. It has a more creative name, which I can't remember now, but it's called the HEAL Act. And one of, their, one of the features of that law is to define some key terms that are commonly used when you're talking about environmental justice issues. So we talked about the map and identifying, you know, what is and what is isn't an EJ community. This law and the New Jersey law did as well, but it defines the term environmental justice, for instance. It it defines a lot of these terms that people have used for a long time, but haven't had any grounding in a law, you know, so so it's always been up to interpretation. So this will make things easier there. On that front. And like New Jersey as well, it requires certain agencies to conduct environmental justice assessments um, when they're dealing with overburdened communities and vulnerable populations. Washington went a step further, though. They passed a second law that was climate change focused, but in that climate change focused law, there's provisions regarding environmental justice. Um, So the climate change law which is kind of catching on as a new term, climate justice. So they're kind of incorporating, everyone knows we have to do something about climate change. Everyone knows we have to do something about environmental justice. So they're combining the two things. And basically that law generally directs state agencies to ensure um, that the communities that bear the greatest burdens from air pollution today are the beneficiaries of any pollution reduction efforts in the future. So that's what Washington's been up to.
2: Gotcha. Well, so now, I mean, environmental justice—I guess the first state that even comes to mind is California. Obviously, they're um, moving on this as well, and we know that the state AG's office there founded a Bureau of Environmental Justice in 2018. What's been going on there since?
3: Yeah, California has been somewhat at the forefront of a lot of these issues, for one reason or another. But um, and they've had some some legislative and regulatory uh, initiatives that have attempted to make a dent in this problem. But one of the things that they've been noted for is, as you mentioned, this, creating this Bureau of Environmental Justice in 2018. Um, I think it started with about five attorneys. And then last year, um, they beefed it up to 11. They've really put a lot of resources into this bureau. They're uh, publicizing the bureau's efforts. For instance, last summer, Um, The AG's office sued the city of Fontana in the state for approving a large warehouse in an especially populated community without proper environmental review. So that's sort of a, you know, that's a change, um, especially, you know, that's that's putting the city on notice that, you know, the state is paying attention and they, you know, they're going to enforce if they see that the state environmental statutes aren't being followed, you know, to the T.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting development because it's one thing to have laws or regulations on the books. It's a whole different matter for the state to actually take up the cause of enforcing those things and pushing them forward through courts.
3: Right. And California, as I mentioned, they don't have an EJ law like New Jersey or Washington per se, but they so they're using their existing state environmental statutes. Right. So the California Environmental Quality Act, they're just using what they have at this point. Um, which apparently is enough for the, the prosecutors in that office to put those laws to work and, and go after some of these cities and projects.
0: Well, what are we expecting from other states as they look to the examples of New Jersey, Washington, California, and sort of the different approaches that are making inroads in those states? Are there others that are going to follow in their footsteps?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's really a kind of a, a groundswell of momentum for environmental justice issues, and as we mentioned, you know, the Biden administration has made it a, a a real point to to highlight this across the federal government. We've got states like New Jersey, Washington, and California that are really far out there in their efforts, but obviously the issues are everywhere in the U.S. So there's you know states that are also Starting to move forward on this, some of those are uh, New York, North Carolina, and Virginia. Um, they haven't gone as far as as the states we've talked about, but they're starting to make you know they're at least starting to pay lip service to to some of these things. And uh, going back to the federal government for a second, I just wanted to mention that the you know Congress last year as part of their covid recovery and infrastructure bills you know there's millions of dollars in those bills for ej efforts that's going to the epa and other federal agencies to beef up their efforts so we can expect to see the states like virginia north carolina and new york and probably others you know taking their own individual approach to these issues and probably coming up with solutions that we haven't thought of yet or other states haven't thought of yet. And at the same time, um, the federal government's going to be working on it on their end, too. So, you know, a very reasonable to expect a lot more movement in this area in the coming years.
0: Yeah, it definitely seems like this is one to watch for people that maybe hadn't been as keyed in to the, the concept of environmental justice. It sounds like it's getting some momentum across the nation. So really appreciate you breaking it all down for us.
3: You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, JC.
0: our show is something offbeat. And guys, I just have a general question for you. Do you have feelings about the restaurant chain Cracker Barrel?
2: Absolutely. Yes. Dean, the floor is yours. Oh, I mean, yeah. That's, there's been many a, many a Sundays spent with uh, old aunts and uncles who have only been to one restaurant. That one restaurant is and always will be Cracker Barrel.
0: I love that you set it up that way, and I feel our connection growing, Dean, because you grew up in Virginia. I grew up in West Virginia. Oh wow! I very much recall one vacation where my hometown now has a Cracker Barrel, but when I was growing up, it did not. And we were on a vacation. I think going to the the Carolinas, maybe, and. My mom made us stop at every Cracker Barrel she saw on every day of that trip. Oh, so, tell, tell me
2: that they're different at each one. Tell me, <laughs> tell me that there's no. One I mean, as a
0: kid though, I didn't mind it because they have that uh, Cracker Barrel general store thing oh, yeah. set up in the front of all of them. So, as a like teenager and my younger sister's nine years younger than me, so she beelined it to the toy section. I'm looking at every like fancy journal and pen I could convince my parents to buy me. Like everybody was happy,
2: right?
0: Um. Do you want to talk about some people that were not happy with their visit to Cracker Barrel, though?
1: Do I wait? Do I not get to share my Cracker Barrel? I thought you didn't have any. No, I, I was just I was just letting him go first. Uh, I texted my mom because I honestly didn't know if we'd ever been to Cracker Barrel. <laughs> and she gave a very a very mom response. She said, I don't think so. I know your cousin and her family have been there. Thanks, mom. Uh, <laughs> great, great help. Uh, so I don't think I've ever been there. However, I will just say, as a general matter, uh, I really do appreciate restaurants that also have stores and merch because uh, this runs deep for my Rainforest Cafe roots. Oh Ooh, right, yeah. I, so yeah, I have a general appreciation for the for the business model.
0: You know it is smart because if you're ever waiting on a table, you're not unhappy. There's plenty to do.
1: You can uh, mill around. Yeah, what do absolutely. they got there? You can get like kitchen stuff or oh, uh, Alex. Nice. What they got, did
0: they not have? Oh yeah, they got okay. all yeah. the old school yeah. candies. It is.
2: Yeah, that's where I found Pop Rocks for the first time as a. Oh user. wow! Sure. Okay. Oh wow! Yeah, revelatory. Yeah. Revelatory. yeah it's giant giant it's got
1: checkers. stuff for people um, of all ages. So oh yeah. Got
0: candy, toys, home goods, like a little bit of everything.
1: Okay, well, uh, why are we talking about it this week,
0: though? We're talking about it for a sort of a sad reason this week, Um, Cracker Barrel has been ordered by a jury to pay a patron named William Cronin more than $9.3 million because they served him a glass of water that was actually filled with a cleaning chemical. (laughs) So, you know, that's not great. Um, I am
1: not. I am many credits shy of my, uh, you know, consumer protection legal certificate or whatever. But this this doesn't seem legal,
2: Amber. Can we can we hope uh, this was a clear jury. cleaning solution? I mean at the very yeah, least... Yeah, we'll get into some more details right. about
0: what exactly happened. But like a jury definitely thought this was a bad move. Um uh, mm-hmm. they said the company has to pay him more than four point three million in compensatory damages, another five million in punitive damages. Um this is for an incident that actually happened in twenty fourteen. It took a while to get through the courts, COVID slowed some things down and and whatnot. But yeah, cleaning solution guys. <laughs> I can probably give you a couple of extra beats on what exactly happened. He Cronin had finished his lunch at the Cracker Barrel, and it's one that was in Tennessee. A waitress asked him if she could refill his water glass, and she did that. He took a couple big swigs out of it <laughs> and almost immediately started feeling a burning sensation in his mouth and throat. He started struggling to breathe. I mean, that'll happen. Um, it was later determined he'd accidentally <laughs> been served this mix of Water and a chemical that they use back a house c- called Ecosan. It's a cleaning agent for commercial kitchens. Basically, the lawsuit he filed against Cracker Barrel said he then had years of gastrointestinal issues. That this wasn't like a one-time injury. That he w- sustained things that were plaguing him to this day.
1: I gotta say, I mean, it's a it's it's a pretty gnarly thing to have happen to you in any context. But there's something really kind of. Sadly ironic about the fact that he was done with the meal and asked for one last sip. He was almost out of there. He was almost out of there. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean this is a sad story, kind of start to finish, really. But also, you know, the responses to this have been a little bit interesting, I think. Right.
2: What was Cracker Barrel's reaction?
0: Yeah, Cracker Barrel said the case was, you know, they're happy that it's basically concluded, they pointed out that this was an isolated incident, stressed that, of course, they don't want people to think this is happening everywhere. (laughs) Flip side, Cronin and his attorney say that the trial really pointed out that while Cracker Barrel overall has good and written policies saying like, don't put any unmarked chemicals in unmarked containers because that's asking for trouble. But the problem is the implementation of that. There's locations all across the country and they say this one in Tennessee in particular was not training employees on that very important policy. And so that's how you end up with a mix up that can really, I mean, it's really damaged this guy's life.
1: You know, whenever stuff like this happens, you know, maybe it's because we're journalists or whatever, I do think about the PR flack who had to work messaging on this and say, you know, this is an isolated incident. Right. Cracker Barrel has not added uh, eco <laughs> sand as a special menu item. This is not something we're looking to make a regular thing, folks.
0: Yeah, I mean, glad they cleared that up, obviously. Yeah. Um, one other little wrinkle, though, and this kind of, you know, your mileage may vary on whether or not you think this is a good or bad global policy. But (laughs) the jury award here was over nine million. But it seems very likely that this man won't get anywhere near that because there is a Tennessee law that limits non-economic damages to seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So, depending on where you fall on tort reform, it's one of those style laws mm. that's going to come into play here as well.
2: So, how does that? And I just want to ask: I mean, how does that play out when there's five million in punitive damages coming into play? Does that does that sort of undercut that in any way?
0: Yeah, I think I think that um, the judge is likely to knock those down um, substantially. So they'll probably do some balancing of what was actual economic damages, which would stand alone, and then the cap for everything else would be seven hundred fifty thousand. Gotcha. So. He's probably going to get a much, much lower award than that nine plus million dollars I was talking about.
1: Well, either way, quite an expensive uh, glass of water to order uh, at Cracker Barrel. And just, uh, I don't know, maybe just take a glance uh, next time you want to take a sip of water at a, at a restaurant. I
2: guess that's I do want to say that I just looked moment. it up and EcoSan is a yellow liquid. So I got I to gotta hmm. hope there was a lot of water diluting it there, either that or. I don't know. Just saying. Somebody <laughs> might, somebody should have noticed in the back end. Thank you. Thank you. Sage Wisdom from Dean. Uh, and thank you for
1: joining us, Dean. Great to have you back on the show. And uh, thanks as always, Amber.
0: Yeah, it was a really good one, guys. Nice talking to you.
2: Glad to be here. Thanks, guys.
0: We also want to thank a bunch of other people for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Juan Carlos Rodriguez, and contributing reporters, Chris Malani and Matthew Perlman. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like our show, go ahead and leave us a five-star and written review wherever you're listening so other people can more easily find us. If you want to read more about the things we've talked about today, you can check out our website. That's law360.com podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.